Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Sam Cecilia, the Chief Investment Officer of the $46 billion Host Plus Fund. Sam, welcome. Nice to be here, Alex. Well, thank you very much for your time today and, and for agreeing to come on. It's been um, a very interesting few months um, for you personally and for the fund, copying a lot of criticism from some parts of the media. Um, unfairly, might I add, I think we probably haven't seen such criticism since the probably 300 articles that I saw that came out um, around Alex Malley and his, and his role at, as the CEO of the CPA. I just wanted to maybe get your sort of thoughts initially around sort of that broader backdrop and maybe sort of the personal attacks that that came initially. Sure. Um, look, the the criticisms that were levied at the super industry and at Host Plus, most of those are founded in misconception. People make assumptions that are simply wrong, and I'm happy to clarify some of those. The criticism that came in the form of a personal attack on me, Mm. I'd rather not discuss the details of that, Uh, and there were many of those personal attacks. It just signalled to me that we had won the intellectual argument. There's clearly an ideological war happening about superannuation. And that's a war that we are we are well equipped and ready to fight as an industry. But the personal attacks simply signaled to me that they had run out of intellectual argument and therefore resort to attacking people personally. And um, you know, that's not the way we do business. Mm-hmm. Well let's maybe then deal it. You know, dig into some of the other issues that were sort of raised at at the time. You know, aside from the personal issues, there were some concerns about liquidity. Can you give maybe some more context around liquidity? You know, there's a lot of comments about Host Plus and its members and its member backdrop, and um, these people looking to to basically drain their account. Um, can you help us sort of understand maybe where the misconception stands there? Yeah. So when people think about liquidity. They often confuse it with cash flows, right? And liquidity and cash flow management are two separate things. Where they got the notion that there was a pending liquidity crisis is because they assumed by looking at our strategic asset allocation that we had a whole stack of illiquid stuff that couldn't be sold. And therefore, they implicitly assumed that our actual asset allocation and our strategic asset allocation were one and the same thing. And let me assure you, they're not. Trustee boards set a strategic asset allocation and then cash flows coming in and out and the market volatility and opportunities to invest or not take you away from strategic asset allocation. 
And most funds, most funds rebalance back to strategic asset allocation. But when you have close to 40% of your fund illiquid, the concept of rebalancing is a nonsense. And so when we were criticised about liquidity based on strategic asset allocation, we responded by putting our actual asset allocation on the screen, on, on the, on the, on the um, landing page of our website. Not so much for our members, mainly for the journalists. And if you just to show you one particular example, our strategic asset allocation to cash was zero. They assumed that meant we had no money, but our actual asset allocation to cash was 13%. That's how much cash we had built up. Our strategic asset allocation to fixed interest is zero, but the actual asset allocation to fixed interest was closer to 4%. And so that, when you do the sums, it meant that Host Plus ended up being, on the 1st of April, when we put that table up, we ended up being nearly two-thirds illiquid. Uh, so, sorry, nearly two-thirds liquid. 63% of the fund was liquid. And so that silenced, in essence, the, um, the doomsayers. Uh, the other assumption that they made was that the early release scheme, because it allowed for $10,000 in this financial year and $10,000 to be withdrawn early release from super in the next financial year, they assumed people would take it. And we have a large cohort, more than half our member base, that have an account balance around $2,000. This is an industry that's a kid's first job often. Waiting tables, hospitality, tourism, leisure, sport. That demographic hasn't had the opportunity to build wealth yet. So they couldn't take out the 10,000 even if they wanted to because they didn't have that much in their account. And so when you, you know, when you make assumptions about an entity like Host Plus, you draw conclusions. And as they say, a conclusion is the point at which we stop thinking. They didn't think it through. Had they thought it through, they'd see that it's unlikely that there would be a liquidity crisis. Is, is a lot of the questions around sort of the liquidity concern um, because of the fact that it said zero, you know, cash was the initial um, SAA that they saw and fixed interest being zero and, and didn't really take into consideration that a lot of these share investments are actually liquid. Maybe you don't want to sell them um, in, you know, at the bottom of the market, but they can be converted to, to cash. Uh, absolutely. Um, your entire equities portfolio, we at the time we had 22% of our portfolio was Australian shares. Another 22% was international shares develop markets. Uh, put aside emerging markets for a minute, that was a whole 8%. But let's say 
you sold your Australian equities and your international equities, that would be 44% immediately liquid, mm -hmm. right? Now, so do we want to sell those? Absolutely not. Do we want to sell them at the trough of the market? Uh, absolutely not. Could we sell them? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. there, there was an, a, a sort of a, a corollary story, which was this ISPT uh, and liquidity that was being asked for. You know, I, I guess that might have been there to sort of promote the narrative that liquidity was a problem. Can you can you comment on on that particular story? Sure, sure. So it's it's a pretty simple one. Given, I mean, ISPT is a property manager, right? Mm -hmm. And they have physical buildings. Now, if you wanted liquidity, you're not going to get it out of ISPT. It, you, you might get it in six months' time, but if you needed liquidity now, you don't tap into ISPT for it. You sell your equities, right? Mm -hmm. Why did we put in that redemption notice with ISPT? It's pretty straightforward. The rules of the ISPT constitution, the trust deed, if you like, of the fund that we were invested in, the core fund, said that any application for money during a quarter had to be made by a critical date to be paid at the end of the next quarter. So that critical date was the 19th of April, actually the 16th of April. And the early release scheme started on the 20th of April. So if we wanted liquidity for early release purposes, no point tapping into ISPT. You're not going to see that money for months, right? Mm -hmm. So why did we do it? Well, we didn't know the demand from our members for early release. We, we had some modelling, we had a low case and a mid case and a high case, but we didn't know for sure. And so we knew that if we had to sell equities to pay the early release, then there would be a need to rebalance our strategic asset allocation at some stage in the future. And so we were just preparing for that. If we knew today, if sorry, if we knew then what we know today, there would never have been a need to put in the redemption notice with ISPT, and nor would we have done it. Is that because the number of people asking for withdrawal was less than expected, or was there, or maybe both, that their cash inflows during the pandemic were probably higher than than you maybe expected? Well, I think there's a, I mean, this is all a matter of public record now. You know, the government introduced Job Seeker and Job Keeper that contributed to, um, to uh, you know, uh, individuals, members in, in our case who uh, were not working because hospitality had been effectively shut down, hospitality, leisure, tourism and sport. But, you know, a third of our members, a third, are public offer. So anyone who assumed that Host Plus was in trouble because their industry had been shut down were misguided 
because they didn't realise that we had a third of our member base public offer and therefore unlikely to be from hospitality, leisure, tourism and sport. And so during the months of April and May and now June, although it's not over yet, each of those months have seen cash inflows of over half a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. If, if our industry had been shut down, where do they think we got the half a billion dollars from? Their, their superannuation guarantee contributions, right? They must come from people whose industry is not being shut down, that are still being paid, and therefore the employer has a superannuation guarantee obligation. It's interesting you raise that in terms of the, the open offer and, and the broader industry cohort because you obviously still keep the name Host Plus, um, which represents that broader uh, group of, of members. The vast majority are still 70% of those members. But there was a lot of questions about industry cohorts being being a risk. Now, obviously, if you've got 30% that are coming from other parts of the market um, and you're sort of diversifying it, you know, how do you sort of bridge that gap between sort of you know being a uh, an industry fund for a particular group and then also being open offer. And I guess there may be some mis- misconceptions out in the market in terms of host pass being branded as these particular industry group, but really it's much broader. Well, our heritage, host plus's heritage, originated in the hospitality industry, right? Mm-hmm. And the business has diversified, if you like, the super fund has diversified into public offer members, into pension members, into SMSF members that that are investing some of their SMSF into Host Plus. These are all diversifications, but you, you don't trash your history. I mean, we're proudly from the hospitality, leisure, tourism and sport industry. Let me tell you what that does. It's a young industry, a young person's industry. We have 1.2 million members, average age 34, not retiring anytime soon. So if you're an older member in Host Plus, like me, like somebody who's not in the hospitality industry necessarily who might be an older member of the fund, they get to use young people's money. They get to have young people's time horizon to make investments with, right? So we don't, we don't, obviously we don't invest money for 50 year olds differently to the way we invest money for 20 year olds. And there's lots of reasons for that, and, and I think they're good reasons. But that time horizon, the leverage that it provides, the demographic that comes along with it and the cash flows that come, they are invaluable characteristics. It's interesting you talk about sort of the characteristics of, of that broader group, right? That's the my super sort of the balanced portfolio that, that you have there. I know you've copped a lot of heat as well around sort of the labeling of the balance fund. Um, and, you know, even some of your friends have said, well, hold on a second, Sam, you're really pushing the boundary on balance with you know, almost 75 or 76% in growth assets. Hold on a second. If, we, if we've if got a balance fund, 
we can't do that. Therefore, he's gaming the system. You know, what, what's your thoughts around sort of the balanced portfolio? Is, is there a misnomer around that name? Because balanced is good for your cohort, but then doesn't, you know, correspond in performance tables with other funds? Sure. Um, let me ask a question, a rhetorical question at the outset, right? Mm-hmm. When we think about the label balanced, and the arguments against it in some way, right? What what problem are we trying to solve? And does relabeling solve that problem? That's the question, isn't it? What problem are we trying to solve? And most of the answers that are out there relate to the surveys, right? Agreed. The, the superannuation performance surveys. But do they really think the Host Plus board and the Host Plus investment team set investment strategy to be in a survey? That's nonsense. We set investment strategy because it's our best ideas. Now, you you can't separate the word balanced portfolio from the growth defensive debate. They're slightly different, but they are together. When we think about, you know, balanced portfolios, something like, you know, 60-40 portfolios or 70-30 portfolios or 65-45 portfolios. There's a myriad of, of combinations there. But what we mean by those splits is 60% growth assets and 40% defensive assets. And so it's the actual labels growth and defensive and the definitions of them that are nonsensical. They were suited to an investment environment a long, long, long time ago. And what, we, what I mean by that is that historically, the definition went something like this. Bonds and cash are defensive and equities are growth. Why did they do that? Because they only invested in in bonds, cash, and equities. But then the world moved on and new asset classes started to appear. And so the definition was slightly tweaked. They then said bonds and cash are defensive and everything else is growth. But we know that that's not true. We know that different assets and different asset classes have different degrees of growth and defensiveness about them. And sometimes that changes as the environment changes. How many times have we heard the phrase from an equity manager, the portfolio is defensively positioned? Where did they get the defence from? It's an equities portfolio. Think about, think about a physical building, 
right? Mm-hmm. And think about a physical building that is rented out to the Australian tax office. Good, solid credit rating entity. The risk you're taking there is that the federal government falls over, doesn't pay your rent. That building comes with two characteristics, a a capital, a capital appreciation component, which we would call growth, and an income component, which we would call defensive. And it's possible to separate the growth defensive characteristics at each asset level and therefore at the asset class level. If you do that, you end up with real estate and credit and uh, infrastructure having a combination of growth and defensive. And there's a group of people out there who say that's nonsense. And that group of people does not include APRA, who are the regulators. They've now acknowledged in the heat map that some asset classes have growth and defensive characteristics, real estate and infrastructure being the two poster child of them. And so the query is how much how much growth and how much defensive for all of those. But that's that's a that's a, a you know an, a, something that warrants research and warrants uh, some kind of analysis and a framework and some modelling. And, and my understanding is that APRA is currently doing that. But they will unlikely settle on infrastructure and property being a hundred percent growth. Well, In also- that world. Sorry. Sorry. In that world, our balanced portfolio will be very balanced. Mm-hmm. You know, one, That's one, the first thing. Yeah. Look, I, 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 I acknowledge, I acknowledge that. You know, and I guess there's another sort of component that you didn't touch on there, and that's leverage. You know, a lot of these infrastructure assets are highly levered. Therefore, you know, there's there's quite a lot of volatility that comes behind them. So, you know, how you define them as growth or defensive is one piece, but then the underlying risk that sits underneath growth and sits underneath defensive is one of the things that is very hard to to differentiate. You know, how much risk is too much in growth, and how much risk is inside that defensive piece? Okay, so so when we think about infrastructure or we think about property it's easy to think of the name infrastructure as having all the assets in it in a in a homogeneous way but there's development risk in there if you want to take development risk in in infrastructure you know greenfield risk we do not the rest of them are brownfield they are operating assets and not just any operating assets but these are typically critical infrastructure that society needs to be civilised, roads, airports, power stations, transmission, generation, um, you know, gas, electricity, um, uh, seaports, rail stations. There is leverage there at the asset level, but that's generally true of most investments on this planet. All right, so even getting larger, right? You're seeing it in the equity space as well with the increasing number of buybacks. They're, 
they're they're taking on increased levels of, of leverage. So I, I acknowledge I acknowledge that point. I, I guess I, I want to come back to the, sort of the real start of it. And I yes, it's a labeling issue. Yes, it's a rating label issue. And you say, well, okay, we need to build up fairness. But I think where the maybe the the outrage comes from a number of different groups is they say, hold on a second. If you're number one or number two or number three, particularly number one, let's let's be honest, you're going to get good flows. It's much easier for your fund to go and get flows from different industries and different employers because it says, okay, this is the top fund here. The money will then get allocated. And so I think that's where partly a lot of this this concern or you know people being maybe jealous around it. Um, and it sort of disassociates the cohort. They understand your cohort's young. It's 34 years of age, got a long, long life, but they feel that there's this, this issue because, you know, the, you're, you're able to take that, that greater risk, you know, that lot more long-term um, growth uh, allocation. But, but you've answered your own question implicitly. Look, I only have one obligation from an investment perspective, right? And that's my obligation to host plus members, not members in other super funds, not people that are financial planners or, um, you know, accountants or lawyers or whatever. My obligation is only to host plus members. It's a defined demographic. And we look at that demographic and attached to that demographic is cash flow. And when you put demographics and cash flow together and overlay it with your investment beliefs, you come up with an investment strategy. And that investment strategy has to be fit for purpose for your demographic, not for somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. So we've designed an investment strategy that's very well suited to 1.2 million members of average age 34 with huge cash flows not retiring anytime soon. Let me assure you that if I was CIO of some other fund with some other demographic and some other cash flow, we, we would have a different investment strategy. And why wouldn't you? You would have to have one that's fit for purpose for them. But at the moment... I need one that's fit for purpose for Host Plus and only for Host Plus. And we think we've done that. Is it fair then to say that this sort of general balance fund performance table and league tables is really a bit of a nonsense and we're not, uh, you know, creating portfolios for the underlying member, which is what we all talk about. The, The whole industry is talking about member outcomes rather than talking about who's got the best performance for a balance fund, who performs best for that member cohort? Is that maybe a different way to look at it? Uh, look, I, I think I think I understand where you're going, but order is important, right? We set investment strategy first. Second, we transact in the markets. Third, we end up with a return. And fourth, it ends up in the performance tables, not the other way around. <laughs> So you've got to generate the return first and then you end up in the performance tables. I challenge people to do this, right? Go away, take one of the performance rating tables, see where Host Plus is on that table and then take us out of that table and put us in a growth table or a high growth table 
and you'll find that the historical long-term performance is still up there in the top quartile, irrespective of the survey we're put in. Mm-hmm. So we, we, don't, we, we don't start with the survey, we end with the survey. Is that then? So, uh, sorry. Yeah. I, I was going to ask: no, Is that ahead. does that mean that you know, in terms of, in terms of the cohort, right? Understanding your cohort, because you did mention that if you were at a different fund, you would have a different strategy, right? Is the, is there maybe some need for a lot of funds to sort of, you know, give more context? I know there's financial advice, and this is not financial advice. This podcast, and and you can't give out financial advice, but is there some sort of a backdrop that the funds need to understand? You know, this is what the portfolio is built for. This is the the cohort that's there. Because ultimately, when you invest in the balance fund, you're investing in that broader strategy that meets the median cohort, correct? Well, it's it's 90% of our members are mm-hmm. in the balance fund, right? Yeah. And so it's our flagship fund. It's also our my super fund, right? Mm-hmm. And my super isn't isn't segregated the my super survey if you like isn't segregated by growth defensive splits it's it's everyone's best ideas or or every rather everybody's my super best ideas are in that survey and it happens that we've selected our balanced option to be our my super product, and so it's in the survey, in the my super survey, and anybody who wants to take that balanced option on, be my guest. You know, come up with better ideas, come up with better investments, um, and you you will get a chance and an opportunity, no doubt to do better than the balanced option. But that's not what I hear them say. I hear them say that it's unfair that Host Plus has young demographics. It's unfair that Host Plus's time horizon is so long. It's unfair that the default system from the hospitality industry channels most of the money to Host Plus in that industry. I see nothing unfair about any of that. If that's what's generating the returns for our members, then that's the model everybody should use. And I haven't had a complaint from any of our members about this. It's often external people whom I suspect have vested interests. And I have no obligation to those people, none. And so I don't lose any sleep over it. It's interesting you talked about the, the the vested interests, and I know that the retail side of the equation has has had a you know a bit of a stab at, at industry funds, not not just you, but the broader industry funds for their for their use of unlisted assets um, or private assets that are, that are out there. Sort of keen to get your thoughts on on that broader issue and their concerns there um, that come alongside that space. I mean, it's 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 laughable because of the following fact. What they're really saying is um, industry funds have higher allocation to unlisted assets and their returns are greater because of that. And it's unfair that the superannuation default system channels money to industry funds. So what they're saying is 
it's unfair that industry fund members get a higher return, right? And they attribute that higher return to unlisted assets and the default system and then try seek to try and dismantle it. That makes no sense to me. Again, the beneficiaries of what we do are industry fund members in general, and in my case, Host Plus members specifically. Again, I'm not losing any sleep over any of that. Uh, look, I, um, I'll move on from that from that broader piece because there's a lot of other sort of broader market issues and conversations that I have. You know, you, you, we talked about sort of this 70, 30, 60, 40 portfolio, you know, is that concept is now sort of you sort of touched on a little bit earlier, but is that sort of concept now changed given the market environment that we're in, this broader backdrop with with very low interest rates and, and fixed interest really not offering the defensive characteristics? Sure. You know, think about the historical perspective that I, I gave earlier that a 60-40 portfolio is 60% growth and 40% um, defensive and that 60% growth is equities and the 40% defensive is cash and bonds. Remember, remember that, that, that the people who, um, who are arguing the defensive line, the, the, the definition of defensive assets, they say that only bonds and cash are defensive. And so they would put their 40% of their portfolio in bonds and cash. Cash is earning zero, bonds are at historic lows. If ever interest rates go north, their 40% of the portfolio is going to be sacrificed. And cash earning zero is arguably a very risky asset class because it will not meet the objectives of your member's retirement balance. So the concept of a 60-40 portfolio is really a historic relic. And then to add salt to that injury, you could have a 60-40 portfolio that was 60% BHP shares and 40% NAB notes. Is that not a 60-40 portfolio? Well, there's questions about diversification in, in, in having two, two assets, right? Uh, I'm, gl I'm glad you went down that path. I'm glad you went down that path. So by introducing diversification, you mean other asset classes. Well, but since those other asset classes are all growth, then a 60-40 portfolio would be 60% growth and 40% defensive. That the diversification, those growth assets largely behave like equities if they're listed. If they're, if they're unlisted, then my argument is that they have both growth and defensive characteristics. But if they're listed, then they end up behaving like equities. So just think about it this way, right? Again, let me take you back to that building that was 100% leased to the ATO. If we put that building in a vehicle, a, you know, a truss structure, and stick it onto the ASX, it becomes a listed property trust, does it not? Let's say it's a listed property trust with one building in it. And let's say the same building, when it's unlisted, was valued at $100 million. And your, your argument should be, when it's listed, it should also be valued at $100 million. And I would agree with that. 
except for one thing. You have a world leader who might tweet something that ends up causing volatility in the markets, and when the market goes south, the listed property trust with that one building in it also goes south. Yet my physical building has 100% leased to the ATO. My argument is I don't care what the stock exchange did to that building, that building is still valued at $100 million. Or get an expert valuer who's an expert valuer from the real estate um, uh, uh, industry. They will independently value that building and then it gets independently audited and then the value of that building ends up at the super fund. So it can move around, absolutely. But valuers look through cycles. They would just ignore the tweet. The question that I wanted to dig into is, you know, you talked about valuation in, in property um, and that, you know, there's valuations there, but we've also got a bit of an issue with a number of the unlisted, you know, assets, property being one of them, that you mentioned their values quarterly or, or you know, when you bring in a, an external party. But we have an issue with daily liquidity or daily unit pricing that sits within Superfund. Right. So let's start with the fact that super, the super is a long-term game. And an individual, a member, enters the super system at a certain time and stays in the super system for 40 years, say, and then leaves the super system. There's a few other ways to, to leave the super system earlier. One of them is dying, but that's typically not palatable for most people. So, yes, when you come in and when you leave the system has some effect, but those end and, and start conditions are marginal relative to what happens over the entire 40-year period. So your question specifically was about equity and unit pricing on a daily basis, right? Yeah, it's a mismatch maybe around governance or of particularly these sorts of assets sure. where there's an expectation that there's daily pricing um, and that the price is, is fair from a member equity point of view. Sure. So think about it this way, right? Your super account, your balance, is not the same as a bank balance account. It, it, it just isn't. You get that impression if you look at the statement, but it isn't because in it, there's valuations from last quarter, the quarter before, the quarter before that. You might say, well, that's inequitable. My argument would be, no, no, it applies to every member in the entire system. Then your argument might be, well, how come you've got stale prices in your value, in your unit prices, valuations of assets that haven't been valued in the last, say, six months? The answer to that is pretty straightforward. 99.999% of the world's assets are unlisted. 
Just think about that. There's only 30,000, 40,000 shares listed on a stock exchange across the planet. You've probably got that many houses in the suburb that you live in or in the, the city that you live in. Every shopping centre, every railway station, every infrastructure asset, every um, real estate asset, uh, every plant and equipment that BHP owns as a company, all of that is unlisted and all of it are valued infrequently because the cost of valuing everything every day would be astronomical. Think about your, the rates that you pay on your, on your home. Imagine if the valuation of that home to set the rates had to be done on a daily basis. It's crazy. The world does not function with daily unit pricing. Are we so setting, way, just, just, to, just to touch on that point, are we setting the wrong expectation for members that you do get daily prices? Well, they get daily prices. That They do get daily prices. But the expectation that it reflects all the underlying assets that, that, are, that are part of it. It, it does. It includes the most recent valuations of every asset in the portfolio. The most recent. Not yesterday, not the day before, the most recent. But every member in the fund gets the same valuation of the same asset. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. I guess it's more around sort of that members can still change. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of maybe I'm I'm taking it to a different level in terms of members can still change and how to make sure that there is that that fairness where people feel that they can sort of move their money out from their balance fund if they choose to out for balance fund, move it to growth or move it to cash or or whatever. Um, you know, how to sort of deal with that that potential issue because this issue around pricing of these assets has a secondary effect which. Some people claim that you know, the, the lack of valuation also then underweights volatility and maybe is one of the reasons why a lot of these private assets or unlisted assets are able to you know, help lower risk, but maybe you know, not really fairly is, is, is why I use in quotations. Okay. So, so let me address that one, right? Let's say they're right that, if they were valued every day, then you would get a more precise valuation, okay? Mm -hmm. It's hard to argue against that. But the fact is you can't value them every day. And so what you're left with is the following. Infrastructure cannot be valued every day. Therefore, we shouldn't invest in infrastructure. Is that the conclusion we reach? And if that's the conclusion we reach, good luck with nation building, good luck with contributing to the economy, and everybody would be invested in listed shares, bonds, and cash. And if that is optimal, then we should do it. But if it's suboptimal, then tell the people who are complaining about valuations that they need to change their tune. I think it's more more of an issue around sort of the the 
the expectation that there is a daily price. I, I know that there are, you know, part of the PDS, there are daily prices and so forth. I think it was more just a, a mismatch between this long-term horizon of super and then telling members that you got these daily volatility in, in your pricing. And I think that that's more of a, a broader philosophical issue around super. And nothing to do with nation building. And I think that that's, that's pretty clear. And there's a lot of uh, belief in super playing a larger and larger role and we'll talk about that a little bit later in terms of private equity and infrastructure but i think it was more of an issue around this daily pricing how to make sure that it's fair you know is it really the best way of creating a fairness in terms of pricing member member equity issues and also is it the right thing to do in terms of having so you know prices every day at the same time as we're trying to tell people that you're investing for 20 30 40 years I don't see the inconsistency there. The unit price they get is the unit price. There's no other unit price. And remember, if they transact at that unit price by moving between options or moving to another fund, the money is still trapped in the super system. And so what they're doing, let's say they swap super funds, a member swap super funds. They're selling, they're selling their account at certain unit prices in one super fund and buying at at unit prices in the other super fund. Both of them are imprecise by the you know on metric of daily prices, uh, on the metric of, of of you know more frequent valuations. Again, this notion that it is a precise, um, a precise science is nonsense. And we fool ourselves. We fool ourselves. Think about a listed company. Think about BHP. Let's say its share price is $8.10. When was the last time the market valued each and every asset that BHP owns, from desks and computers to plant and equipment to mines. Yet we fool ourselves that $8.10 times the number of shares that are out there is the value of the company. It's the implied value of the company based on the most recent valuations in the financial statements of that company, which are typically 12 months old or could be six months old or could be three months old, but they're certainly not daily. I absolutely agree with you on that point. I guess it was more trying to to question whether these daily unit prices is actually uh, appropriate or fair for this this broader mindset around superannuation and the long-term nature of super. Well, the long-term nature of super was well served historically, you know, in the super sense of history, 30 or so years, has been, you know, it it has been well served by annual crediting rates or six monthly crediting rates. If you have crediting rates every year, then you can make sure that the most recent valuations are used. Again, they're not the value, not... It's impossible, impossible to value your entire Superfund portfolio the day before you strike the unit price. That can't be done. 
And anybody who tampers with the system because of that is effectively saying you can't invest in unlisted assets. Mm -hmm. And that would be a sad day because that's, again, that's what contributes to, to nation building. That's what contributes to supporting the economy. Let's move back to sort of the early piece in the conversation. I know we've been on a bit of a wild uh, sidetrack there, but the conversation around diversification, um, you know, in, in this in this type of environment where there is such low interest rates and you, and you really gave some interesting backdrop around cash and fixed interest, not playing the defensive characteristics that they that you would expect them to in this new environment, you know, how do you, how do you feel diversification has changed over even your time at Host Plus and how you build a portfolio? Well, so two things. Firstly, over time, a super fund gets bigger. And so, you know, right at the outset when we were born 32 years ago with, you know, little or no funds under management, then, you know, it was cash and bonds and, 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 and equities and that's about it. And then slowly because you have the capital to do it, you diversify into private equity and into infrastructure and real estate and credit and alternative strategies like hedge funds. And so there's a point at which that diversification, remember the, de- the, the purpose of diversification is risk mitigation. You get to a certain point where you are sufficiently diversified that it's unlikely that a single event will wipe you out. And look what's happened during the pandemic. Super funds are going to get, you know, single digit with a plus or minus near it, but single digits, not negative 30 like the share market or positive 20 like the share market, depending on where it ends up. So the purpose of diversification is risk mitigation. But the follow-on question is, is it possible to be over-diversified? The answer to that, I think, is yes, because you get to a point where you are so fragmented that there's no material benefit in adding more to the diversified portfolio, more diversification. But there's a point at which sufficient is enough. Uh, And so diversification has changed because the opportunity set has changed. And in this environment, the environment that we're in right now, if you were not diversified, you would have suffered one consequence. But because most super funds, including Host Plus, are very well diversified, the consequences were different, much less impact. And you'll see that borne out in the numbers. So there's no, there's no imperative because of the current environment to go out and get additional diversification unless you weren't diversified to begin with. Let's stick to the diversification piece with the broader sort of market environment being low rates, this constant flood of liquidity from, from central banks around the world. You know, one of the things that we talked about just before going on air is, you know, if you look to the S&P 500, 24% 
um, of that indices is made up of six stocks. It's the Fang and, and, and Microsoft, right? So we can talk about diversification and being over-diversified. You know, in this broader backdrop of markets where you've got very low interest rates, liquidity coming into the place, we're seeing some real structural changes in, in who ends up winning in this new regime. You know, is there, is there an example where maybe you know, we've just so too diversified in holding 500 stocks and 200 stocks? Should we be going you know, to, to lower and lower numbers of actual investments um, as you build the portfolio and having maybe larger investments in key you know, key particular stocks or key bonds or, or so forth? Yes, I think that's a reasonable argument, right? So over time, I think implicitly in your question is, you know, what do you do next, right? Over time, I think what we, what we will see is pension funds around the world, superannuation funds in Australia, will end up owning a greater slice of companies that they will hold on forever. Whether that that occurs because they grow them from venture capital to private equity and never list, mm-hmm. or whether they take private a company that's currently listed, but it ends up being such a uh, an important holding because that company does something special, has some characteristic about it that you would want to hold on to it for a long, long time, right? So I think we will find that that level of concentration will occur. What we won't find is asset classes diminishing so that we're back to two or three. That would be increasing risk unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Does that does that mean then in terms of active management really is sort of changing from sort of being active in sort of picking stocks to being almost active in owning these businesses and, and making sure that, you know, they're they're performing well for the members? Well, being active, I mean, if you, you know, again, we're not in the business of operating companies, right? Mm-hmm. Company has a board. They should just hold them accountable, just like we do a listed company. Hold them accountable, but let the board drive the company. The company needs a board. You, you you can't have superannuation staff running companies. What's the point in that? How, how far can you go with that? So you still the company is still an operating company. It still operates. Um, you know, active management. That this whole. I'm not sure whether you wanted to venture into active and passive, right? But this whole notion of the importance of of active management. You, you, it, it homes in much more when you realise that other than equities that can be passively managed, almost all of the other asset classes, credit, infrastructure, real estate, all of that is typically actively managed. So you have a huge chunk of, of non-passive investments anyway, and the question is, if you if you have a portfolio of active equities, do you get paid? Does your attribution show that active management has paid off after fees? And if it does not, 
then you should stop active management. And if it does, you should continue active management. It's interesting you mentioned a bit about sort of super funds not running companies. It feels like we're almost going down that path of a number of other funds with the internal teams uh, and owning direct, you know, direct holdings um, in in these companies. Um, sometimes having directors on on boards of of some particular investments as well, uh, and particularly with the backdrop of ESG uh, becoming quite involved in the businesses. You know, I know you've chosen to to have everything outsourced to different managers. Do you feel that there's a bit of a problem? With the internalization that that super funds are maybe losing their their key role in terms of allocating capital for for members and becoming just almost surrogate asset managers. Well, when they do internalize, they they are asset managers, right? Mm-hmm. Let's let's get that clear. We shouldn't be. None of us should be let me use the word arrogant, we shouldn't be arrogant enough to say we know better. Obviously, a super fund that chooses to internalise believes that they are doing the right thing for their members. Typically, it's a cost control argument, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other models that work really well. Host Plus has one of them. We've rejected internalization. We would prefer to have expert external fund managers, just like we have expert external tax and legal people, because you can internalize that as well just like we have an expert administrator because you could internalise that as well and be self-administered. We choose to have external experts and hold them accountable and drive the costs down. That's, that's a viable model. If it ends up being unviable, then we'll consider something else. So why do super funds choose to internalise? If you think about the components that go into running money, trading systems, risk and compliance frameworks that are specific to that, uh, separation of, of staff that are involved in transacting in the markets from those that are not involved in transacting in the markets, etc. what you've actually done is internalised risk. You've internalised human resource risk, people risk. You've internalised system risks. You've internalised technology risks, operating risks. You'd better be paid for that beyond just the fee saving from external management. Mm And so the argument for internalization, when you take risk into, into account, is not as strong as people might believe. But again, other super funds are doing it and they feel that that's good for their destiny. It'll be interesting to see what happens. It's definitely watch this space, uh, that, that is for sure. 
Um, a couple of other things that I wanted to touch on, you know, in terms of the the structure of your team, you've now got two deputy CIOs. Can you give a bit of context on on Greg Clerk and Andrew Howard and sort of how the three of you sort of uh, work in, in terms of building out the portfolio and deciding strategy? Sure. Well, let, let me take this opportunity to say I'm, I'm very fortunate, very, very fortunate to have Greg and now Andrew as part of the team. So the three of us, if you like, provide, uh, or we should be providing intellectual capital, we should be providing thought leadership. Uh, three heads are better than one, if you want a catchphrase for that. If we're not going to be managing money in-house, if we're not internalising, exactly what are we going to be doing? Right? Mm -hmm. That's a reasonable question. And the answer to that is you need to take control of knowledge, of information, of thought leadership. It doesn't mean you can't have advisors. Of course you can. But someone has to be accountable for thought leadership, and I don't think you should outsource that 100%. That doesn't make any sense. You should get the outsourced people to contribute to that, asset consultants, fund managers, administrators, custodians. Each of them have a perspective on what happens in the market. So that's the reason why we moved from one CIO to one CIO and a deputy CIO and now a second deputy CIO, it's really to have a group of people that are, in one of a better term, driving investment strategy and taking into account things like portfolio construction or, or um, you know, capital market uh, knowledge. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, in terms of sort of the, the broader team and, and what you're looking at going forward. Obviously, we're seeing somewhat of a, a really big change from technology and there's a lot of deflationary forces that are out there in the market. I know you've also got a very uh, strong view on, on private equity and venture capital. You know, is that what you see as being the opportunity for growth given these really bigger deflationary forces that we're seeing out in the market and sort of trying to, to capture growth given the, the backdrop? Yes, you, you made the point earlier about FANGs and Microsoft, right? typically technology companies, right? If you think about our investment in private equity and, and venture capital is a subset of that, right? Um, venture capital managers look for companies with higher rates of growth. It, it provides uh, an option, optionality, if you like, to invest in new exciting areas of the economy. But what venture capital companies try and do is to challenge and disrupt old business models. And we're familiar with that disruption, right? When people ask, why have you invested 2% of your fund, that is uh, private equity is 8% and venture capital is a subset of it, which is roughly a quarter, a quarter of 8%. So 2% in venture capital. Why have you only invested 2% in venture capital? Surely it's immaterial and surely it's trivial. 
And my response there would be, well, th that's not true because even though we only have 2% of the fund in venture capital, that 2% can end up disrupting the other 98. We just don't know when and which one. Do you use... Let, oh, sorry. sorry let, let me be clear that the primary purpose of investing in venture capital is to deliver great returns for the benefit of Host Plus members. But you can't divorce yourself from the secondary benefits that come along with investments in, in venture capital. We, we have a, an immense sense of pride, if you like, in the role that we play in supporting and growing the Australian economy, not, not just for today, but for the future of our nation. It creates jobs, it drives innovation. But there's secondary benefits. We have to be clear about why we're making investments, and that's for the retirement benefit of our members, always. And that was part of my next question around the role of super nation building. You know, should super funds have, you know, a, a greater, you know, uh, importance in 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 being that nation builder and investing in this this new part of the future? I know you invest in VC globally, but particularly maybe at home in terms of Australia, do, do we need more help or assistance or? Uh... Oh, well, let's put it this way. The economy historically in our country has been driven by resources. Coal and iron ore are our number one and number two export. But education is our number three export. That's a knowledge-based export. As the economy rotates away from manual labour, if you like, towards other sectors that still require labour but in a different form, biomed, advanced um, computing, autonomous systems. These are areas that we need to build over time. And a good place to start is in the venture capital space. So we need to build the so-called venture capital ecosystem. And, and this has been built over years and years and years. And we're, we're now coming in because it's reached a stage where institutions can invest in it. And so that is nation building. It's just not putting up buildings necessarily. You are building the economy of the future for the nation. And that's an exciting thing. Look, absolutely, and, and employs a, lot, a large number of people, particularly as we, you know, we're seeing these large businesses getting larger and larger and there seems to be this bit of concern around you know, the size of some of the large businesses eating away the small ones. Uh, to have that, that, um, that growth at the, at the smaller end of the economy is, is seen as, as being really critical, particularly with, with the coronavirus um, you know, really affecting a, a whole range of, of industries. Um, one of the other yeah. areas, oh, sorry. So can I just jump in there? There was one other thing that, that I think is important in, in, in the framework of, of, of your question, uh, and, and that is 
let's look at what happens if we do not invest in venture capital, right? Then companies that start up in this country will be starved of cash, cash flow uh, to grow. And they'll have no choice but to go offshore. How is that good for our economy? Oh, to totally agree, and and it's uh it's been a constant issue. And there's you know some of the large uh, companies have have left Australia. They've been VC and, and moved. Atlassian's obviously a good example and moved uh, globally. Still has a big presence here in Australia. Um, but you know, we need to be able to sort of make sure that there is that ecosystem that that gets going. Um, one of the other questions that I had around sort of private equity uh, more broadly is you know its ability to um, create create growth in a time of low low income sorry low yield environment. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts specifically on an on an issue that we saw globally, which was a Calpers deciding to use leverage um, within within their fund. Curious on your thoughts about you know you talk about being a long term investor. Um, and that interest rates are so low, is there a potential for super funds to maybe utilize leverage themselves? You know, I know they can use leverage through vehicles, but you know, is there uh, some sort of an approach that they could they could take? I mean, Alex, if we did that, it would be against the law. The, 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 the CIS Act specifically says super funds cannot borrow. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly not over the time horizons of investments. So it would require a change in law. And we could sit here and speculate what would happen if that's the case, uh, but it would just be speculation. So there's little point in going down that path. Um, at the operating, at the, at the vehicle level, you've already pointed out, there's already leverage applied to some assets in some asset classes by the managers. So that makes a lot of sense. But that's segregated to that vehicle rather than having the potential to on-flow onto the fund itself. Mm -hmm. Another question to, to touch on is, is market timing. Uh, your thoughts, I know you're, you're a long-term investor, but a number of people sort of look at markets, see see the, the volatility and say, look, I'd rather stick this out. Uh, and, and, and wait it out is probably the best way to describe it. You know, what, what's your thoughts on that, you know, in terms of people's concerns about valuations? You know, finance is a, is a complex system, a lot of moving pieces. There seems to be a, more volatility more globally. Um, what, what are your thoughts there? Well, if we talk about market timing in general, and we can talk about valuations with market timing because that just adds another layer of uncertainty and complexity, right? But if you think about timing entry in and out of markets, it's very seductive. As soon as the market starts to fall, get out. As soon as the market starts climbing, get back in. How hard can it be, right? Well, as it turns out, it's incredibly difficult to do, and it's incredibly difficult to do on an ongoing basis. But once you learn to play the market timing game, unlearning it is impossible. And what you end up doing 
is handing your returns back to the market. It's better not to engage in market timing. In most instances, it's better to do nothing, just ride out the volatility. Look at the pandemic. Imagine yourself being in December 2019, very happy, markets are going north, you're invested in equity markets in a diversified portfolio, then March comes along and there's a 30% drop. Do nothing. If you had have done nothing, it would eventually turn around. Remember, you're in super for 40 years. You're not retiring anytime soon. Most members are in that situation. So doing nothing solves the problem. The worst case scenario, you get out at the wrong time and get in at the wrong time. Or even worse, you get out at, the, at what you think is the right time but never go back in because you, you, you're waiting for, a, you know, for, for a, a, a bell to ring and it doesn't happen. Market timing is a loser's game and eventually you will lose. So we don't engage in market timing for that reason. And I know there's a group of people that are listening to this podcast who would say, you know what, I'm very skilled at market timing. And my response to them is thank you very much because we are the beneficiaries of you making a mistake. So you don't believe then, is that fair to say you don't believe in tail hedging then? Well, tail hedging um, is a protection strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not a proponent of protection strategies in super, right? Remember, if you're if you're not in the super system and you don't have that time horizon, you may want to protect your portfolio. But we find that a well-diversified portfolio is a sufficient risk mitigation, as I said earlier. The problem with tail hedging is that the cost of portfolio protection increases enormously with volatility. So when you need it the most, the cost can be huge, especially if you need to roll it over. And what are you insuring against? Your account balance dropping? You're going to be in the super system for decades. What are you insuring against and why are you doing it in the super system? So if those questions aren't answered satisfactorily, um, tail hedging doesn't make a lot of sense to me and we've never deployed it at host because, again, we have a certain demographic with a certain time horizon. Mm-hmm. Interesting, you know, in terms of tail hedging, one of the one of the, the reasons why a couple of people have said that they've, they're starting to look into it is that there's been some you know, regulatory risk or sovereign risk being early access uh, and the need to maybe sort of cut off some of these potentially uh, you know, large drawdowns because there's this sovereign risk or, or regulatory risk that, that's come alongside it. Moving more to the, that sort of conversation around sovereign and regulatory risk, how do you feel maybe your investment strategy needs to change where there are more likelihood or there is more of a likelihood that we see sovereign risk becoming uh, you know, more likely? Okay. So let me separate the case where the frequency of sovereign risk is very regular and often to the case where sovereign risk occurs once in a pandemic, whenever that happens, right? 
what the critics were saying was you should have provisioned for a pandemic. You should have provisioned for a pandemic that led to a change in the super law that led to early release scheme. Let's say we learn from that. How much should we have provisioned? How much will you provision for the next event? Remember that next event is unknown. It's unknown as to the nature of the event. It's unknown as to the timing of the event. It's unknown as to the duration of the event. And it's unknown what the regulatory or legal change will be. Whatever number you come up with to provision for it, the question will be, how do you know that's adequate? So moving from 5% cash to 15% cash because of the regulatory risk, how do you know that that's sufficient? And so there's a sense of futility about it. There really is. Acknowledge that it's a risk. Acknowledge that you may find strategies that can um, diversify or mitigate other risks further. Go for it. We will be spending time doing that. Sacrificing our illiquid assets, our real estate, our infrastructure, our private equity for the once every now and again event, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so it's a long-winded way of saying we will learn lessons from this event, this crisis, just like we learnt lessons from the GFC. But we're not throwing out our investment strategy wholesale. We might tweak it at the margins because what drives investment strategy is our belief system. That hasn't changed, our investment beliefs. It's our demographics, and that hasn't changed. And it's our cash flow, and that hasn't changed. It will come back. I mean, at this point, it's depressed because of the pandemic environment. That's understandable, but it's far from zero. It's half a billion dollars a month, and we've been making investments, right? We, we made the investment in, um, in Square Peg uh, last week, which was widely reported. So we're still making investments and we're still participating in the markets. Can I, can I go back to the sovereign risk and, and take a different angle to sovereign risk? Because early access is one way of thinking about it. The other piece to the sovereign risk is maybe better characterised as popular, populism-style risk, you know, populist risk in terms of changing of taxes, more controls on business, um, increased wages. Are there, are there those sort of issues that are maybe more concerning to you given sort of the, the social unrest that we've seen in the last few months? Yeah. Again, a very good question, Alex. Absolutely, that environment is a concern. But let's accept this. Well, at least I believe it, and, and I'm urging you, know, you and the listeners to believe this, but populism is here to stay. 
it's not going away anytime soon. And so every investor on this planet is subject to populism risk. Do we pack our bags and go home and stop investing? That doesn't make any sense either. So you need to, some risks, you need to wait for them to occur and then manage them as they occur because they are unpredictable, right? And that's part of the expertise that, you know, investors build over time as to how to deal with those situations. But central to any solution is don't panic Mm -hmm. because that invariably ends up in loss. So final question, um, and this is sort of a bit of a reflection over the last few months, you know, you've copped obviously a lot of heat as we started, you know, the conversation from the media, you know, what, what are maybe some thoughts or learnings or even regrets that you may have over the last few months or things you may have done differently personally or, or as part of the fund? Um, sure. Um, from the fund perspective, and I'm going to restrict it to investments, right, because I, I'm not well-placed to talk about any other aspect of the fund. I'm an investment guy, right? I'm, I'm not sure that we have regrets. I think if we had known about the way this movie was going to play out, we may well have put different vehicles in place that will give us greater flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's various things that you would want to be more flexible about, but they don't really fall into the category of regret, right? From a personal perspective, there's probably a couple of regrets. Right at the top of that regret um, um, ladder is that I tried to argue logic and persuasion, at least I thought it was logical and and hopefully persuasive. I tried to argue from a thought leadership perspective on forums like Twitter and the recipients of that were people with vested interests. And so the regret is not arguing, is not the logic and persuasion bit. The regret is believing that I could convince those people. And we need to remember that super funds in general And people like me that work for industry super funds in the investment game, we stand in the way of some of those people, some, not all. We stand in the way of some of those people making a squillion of money if the super system wasn't there. And so that vested interest is a very powerful force and trying to argue against it leaves you with regret. So that's at the top of the list, absolutely at the top of the list. Um, You know, we all learn lessons in life and uh, will I go back to Twitter? Absolutely. 
but I'll be much more um, discreet about and conservative about who I'm responding to. And rest assured, if you are out there and you have a pseudonym with an anonymous name on Twitter, I'm going to block you. I need to know who it is that I'm talking to, just like my Twitter account is Sam Cecilia. I need to know who it is and what they do. If I don't know that, then they're just going to get ignored. And they may well say good, and that's fine with me as well. Well, you always have this podcast as well to come back to if you want to uh, let some more things off your chest. Fighting the Twitter war is is a crazy place. Um, there's swarms of people out there that uh, want to just take people down. I get it. There's trolls and, and so forth. And this whole broader marketplace just feels so much more sensitive. Um, so it's a dangerous game. I know you, you, you try to do the right thing. Sometimes you, know, you probably wound up a few people um, the wrong way, and, and that's part of... That's part of debate, um, and we are missing that, I think, in broader society at the moment. We, we seem to really be losing the ability to have intellectual debates. So, you know, appreciate you you coming on today and, and really helping to explain, you know, the story and, and your philosophy behind Host Plus um, and, and where you're going in future. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.